0: section nine of the lieutenant and others this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the lieutenant and others by sapper driver robert brown to the great army of those who have passed down the long vale unsung unhonoured four or five years ago in the dim hazy time when europe lay at peace there arrived at the station in england where i was fortunate enough to be serving a batch of eight recruits they were very raw and very untrained and it was the doubtful pleasure of the unit in which i was to undertake periodically the training of such batches in order to relieve a somewhat overtaxed depot elsewhere this batch like unto other similar batches aspired to become drivers in his majesty's corps of royal engineers occasionally their aspirations were realised more often not for the terms of their service were two years with the colours and ten with the reserve, and at the end of two years, the average man may just about be considered capable of looking after two horses and a set of harness, really looking after them, and not before. Then they go, or most of them, and the service knows them no more. However, all that is beside the point wandering dispassionately round the stables one day i perceived the eight mounted on blankets sitting on their horses while a satirical and somewhat livery rough-riding corporal commented on the defects of their figures their general appearance and their doubtful claim to existence at all in a way that is not uncommon with rough riders then for the first time i saw brown driver robert brown to give him his full name i had a hunt once number three she was sixty-four and weighed twenty stone and if she'd a been sitting on that there horse o yours she'd a looked just like you only her chest grew in front and not behind like yours Number three was driver Robert Brown. I passed on. The presence of an officer sometimes tends to check the airy persiflage which flows so gracefully from the lips of riding instructors. A week after, I inquired of the corporal as to the progress of his charges. Not bad, sir, he said. The best of them easy is that there Brown he don't look much on a horse in fact he looks like a sack of potatoes but he's a tryer and we'll turn him into something before we've done then one day about four in the afternoon i happened to wander through the stables they were deserted apparently save for the stableman until in a corner i came upon driver brown he was giving his horse sugar and making much of him, to use the riding school phrase. We had a talk, and he told me things when he got over his shyness about his parents and where he lived, and that he loved animals and a lot else besides. From then on, I kept my eye on Brown, and the more I did so, the more I liked him. He was no beauty. He was not particularly smart, but he was one of the best. His NCOs swore by him, his two horses had never looked better, his harness was spotless. In addition to that, he played back in the football eleven, if not with great skill, at any rate with immense keenness. He had exactly the figure for a zealous fullback and was of the type who kicked with such vim that when he missed the ball, which he generally did, he invariably fell heavily to the ground. Thus, Robert Brown recruit. When his two years were up, Brown elected to stay on in the service. The service consisting in this case of his commanding officer, his NCOs, and myself it could find no reason why he shouldn't in fact and on the contrary many very excellent reasons why he should so brown took on for his seven shortly afterwards owing to a marked propensity of my servant to combine the delights of old scotch with the reprehensible custom of sleeping off those delights in my very best easy chair one bought on the hire system not the government issue where sleep under any circumstances is completely out of the question owing as i say to this unpleasant propensity i approached my commanding officer nco's were annoyed they entreated they implored and the issue was in doubt till a providential attack of influenza laid my commanding officer low for the time and the senior subaltern myself reigned in his stead then the sergeant-major laughed and resigned himself to the inevitable driver robert brown became my servant and the desecrator of my padded armchair chair retired after a short period of durant's vial to seek repose on stable buckets during the forthcoming six months i am bound to admit i suffered dreadfully you do not make a servant in a day but he tried his level best we had shirt-parades in which i instructed him in the art of studding shirts with little hints thrown in as to the advisability of wreaking his will on the shirt for dinner before he cleaned my parade-boots for the following morning, not after. We delved into the intricacies of washing lists, and he waxed indignant over the prices charged. They seemed to me quite ordinary, but Brown would have none of it. I did not often study them. Bills were never one of my hobbies. But one day it suddenly struck me that the month's bill was smaller than usual. That was the awful occasion when changing quickly for cricket. I thought something was wrong with the shirt. It seemed rather stiffer in front than the average flannel. Moreover, it had no buttons howls for brown vituperation for lack of buttons but sir that's an evening shirt you've got on one i wash myself to save the washin' bill tableau then i prepared lists on pieces of paper as to the exact things i required packed in my suitcase when i departed for weekends there was the hunting weekend AND THE BALL DANCE WEEKEND, AND THE WEEKEND WHEN I STAYED NEATH THE PARENTAL ROOF, AND uh, OTHER WEEKends too numerous to mention. I would grunt, dance, or home, or brighten at him when he brought me my tea on Friday morning, and then during the morning he would, with the aid of the correct list, pack the necessary there were occasional lapses once i remember it was lunchtime on a friday and we were being inspected the mess was full of brass hats and my train was two forty five i had howled dance at brown as i passed my room before lunch and was hoping for the best when the mess waiter told me my servant wanted me for a moment i went outside please sir them thin ones of yours is full of holes and the other three are at the wash his voice like himself was good and big shall i run down and buy a pair and meet you at the station all the general said when i returned was did he mean socks then there was a dreadful occasion when he sent me away one weekend with one of his dickies in my bag he had been promoted to mufti instead of a dress shirt and another even more awful when he sent me to an austere household prayers at eight etc from the owner of which i had hopes with my boots wrapped in a paper of orange hue which had better be nameless i could continue indefinitely the mistakes that lad made would have built a church but withal i never wish for a better servant a truer hearted friend and all this happened in the long dim ages way back before we started he and i with thousands of others for the land across the water where for a space he remained my servant until in the fullness of time he passed down that long valley from which there is no return many have passed down it these last months many will pass down it before finis is written on this world war but none deserve a gentler crossing over the great divide than robert brown driver royal engineers and sometime batman now should there be any who having read as far as this hopefully continue in the belief that they are getting near the motto in the shape of some wonderful deed of heroism and daring they will i am afraid be disappointed i have no startling pegs on which to hang the tale of his life like thousands of others he never did anything very wonderful he never did anything at all wonderful he was just one of the big army of browns out here of whom no one has ever heard one of that big army who have done their bit unrewarded unknown because it was the thing to do a feeling unknown to some of those at home i allude to the genus maidenhead maggot still seen in large quantities er uh, resting and yet for each of those browns their death recorded so tersely in the paper some heart-broken woman has sobbed through the long night watching the paling dawn with tear-stained eyes aching for the sound of footsteps forever still conjuring up again the last time she saw her man now lying in a nameless grave would the maggot get as much i wonder as i have said i'm afraid i haven't got anything very wonderful to describe you can't make a deathless epic out of a man being sick dreadfully sick beside the road and an hour afterwards getting your food for you it doesn't sound very romantic i admit and yet it was in the morning i remember about three o'clock that we first smelt it and we were lying about half a mile behind the line that first sweet smell of chlorine turning gradually into the gasping throat racking fumes respirators weren't regarded with the same importance then as they are now but we all had them of course i'd lost mine since early childhood i have invariably lost everything brown found it and i put it on and then he disappeared some two hours later when the shelling had abated a little and the gas had long since passed i found him again he was white and sweating and the gas was in him not badly you understand not badly but the gas was in him for three or four hours he was sick very sick and his head was bursting i know what he felt like and i said to the major i'm sorry it's brown but it will teach him a lesson not to lose his respirator again for that is the way with thomas atkins he is apt to lose most things that are not attached to him by chains it doesn't sound at all romantic all this does it and yet well i found my respirator in the pocket of another coat and as brown came in with some food he'd recovered about an hour i handed him back his respirator and i asked him why he'd done it well i thought as how you might have to be given orders like and would want it more than me he spoke quite naturally I didn't thank him i couldn't have spoken to save my life but the lad knew what i thought there are some things for which thanks are an insult there was another thing which comes to me too as i write nothing very wonderful again and yet in the course of our wanderings we were engaged upon a job of work that caused us to make nightly a pilgrimage through wipers at the time wipers was not healthy that stage of the war of attrition i understand that many of the great thinkers call it a war of attrition though personally i wish they could be here when the hun is attriting or whatever the verb is that stage then known as the Second Battle of Ypres, was in progress. And, though all of that modern Pompeii was unhealthy at the time, there were certain marked places particularly so. One such was the Devil's Corner. There, nightly, a large number of things, men and horses, were killed, and the road was littered with, well, fragments now it chanced one night that i had taken brown with me to a point inside the salient and at midnight i had sent him away back to the field the other side of ypres where for the time we were lying two or three hours after i followed him and my way led me past the devil's corner all was quite quiet THE NIGHT'S HATE THERE WAS OVER, AT ANY RATE FOR THE MOMENT. ONE HOUSE WAS BURNING FIERCELY JUST AT THE CORNER, AND THE ONLY SOUNDS THAT BROKE THE SILENCE WERE THE CRACKLING OF THE FLAMES AND THE OCCASIONAL CLATTER OF A LIMBERED WAGON TRAVELING FAST DOWN A NEIGHBOURING ROAD. AND THEN SUDDENLY I HEARD ANOTHER SOUND, CLEAR ABOVE MY OWN FOOTSTEPS. It was the voice of a man singing at least when i say singing it was a noise of sorts also there was no mistaking the owner of the voice too often had i heard that same voice apostrophizing a beautiful picture in a beautiful golden frame i stopped surprised FOR WHAT IN THE NAME OF FORTUNE BROWN WAS DOING IN SUCH AN UNSAVORY SPOT WAS BEYOND ME. IN FACT, I FELT DISTINCTLY ANGRY. THE PRACTICE OF REMAINING IN NEEDLESSLY DANGEROUS PLACES IS NOT ONE TO BE ENCOURAGED. I TRACED THAT NOISE. IT CAME FROM BEHIND AN OVERTURNED LIMBER, WITH TWO DEFUNCT HORSES LYING IN THE DITCH. I crossed the road and peered over sitting in the ditch was robert brown and on his knees rested the head of the limber driver in the breaking dawn you could see that the end was very near the driver had driven for the last time from the limp sag of his back i thought it was broken and a bit of shell had removed well no matter but one could hear the beating of the wings brown didn't see me but occasionally gentle as a woman he bent over him and wiped the death sweat from his forehead while all the time under his breath mechanically he hummed his dirge then the man lying half under the limber stirred feebly what is it mate said brown leaning forward take the letters out of my pocket matey he muttered them blokes at the war office take so long and send 'em to to the lips framed the words feebly but no sound came who to pal whispered brown but even as he spoke the poor maimed form Quivered and lay still. And as I watched Brown lay his head gently down and close his eyes, the road, the houses seemed to grow a trifle misty. When I next looked up, I saw him stumping away down the road, and as he rounded the corner, a dreadful noise stating that, with regard to a lady named Thora. He had loved her in life too little, he had loved her in death too well, came floating back in the still air. Yet methinks no great man's soul, speeded on its way by organ and anthem, ever had a nobler farewell than that limber driver, if the spirit of the singer has anything to do with it but as i said before i could continue indefinitely was there not the terrible occasion when i found him standing guard over a perfectly harmless belgian interpreter with a pick in his hand and the light of battle in his eye under the impression that he had caught a german spy the wretched man had laid on the ground for three hours every movement being greeted with a growl of warning from brown and a playful flourish of his pick also the awful moment when in an excessive zeal he built the major a canvas chair which collapsed immediately he sat in it thereby condemning my irate commanding officer to walk in a bent-up position with the framework attached to his person Till his howls of rage produced deliverance. But time is short, and the pegs are small. He was just one of the Robert Browns, that's all, and the last peg in the lad's life is perhaps the smallest of all. It was wet two or three days ago, very wet, and I, as usual, had gone out without a mackintosh. WE WERE AWAY BACK WEST OF Ypres, IN A REGION GENERALLY CONSIDERED SAFE. IT IS SAFE, AS A MATTER OF FACT, BY COMPARISON, BUT OCCASIONALLY THE HUN TREATS US TO AN OBUS OR TWO, LEST WE FORGET HIS EXISTENCE. I GOT BACK VERY WET, VERY ANGRY, AND VERY BORED, AND HOWLED FOR BROWN. THERE WAS NO ANSWER. Save only from the doctor's orderly, and he it was who told me. Brown had started out when the rain came on, six or seven hours before, with my mackintosh, and not returning, they had gone to look for him. In a ditch, they found him with the water dyed crimson, a few minutes before he died it was just a stray shell that found its mark on the lad i can see him in my mind stumping along the road humming his song and then without warning the sudden screech close on top of him the pitiful sagging knees the glazing film of death with none to aid him through as he had helped that other for the road was little used Thank God they found him before the end. But he only made one remark. I couldn't get no farther, Dick, he muttered, but the Mac ain't stained. I went up to see him in the brewery where they'd carried him, and I looked on his honest, ugly face for the last time. The Mac ain't stained. No, lad, it isn't. May I, when I come to the last fence, be able to say the same? Though he spoke it literally, there is, methinks, a man's religion in those last words of Robert Brown, driver, royal engineers, and sometime batman. End of section 9